Good morning. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We come this morning to one of the most precious, hope-giving, joy-imparting passages in all of Scripture. But the very language of this passage raises questions that often obscure for Christians the joy that this passage imparts. And just like all of the rest of Scripture, we need God's help to understand it properly and to also be transformed by it. So before I read the passage, let's pray together and ask for God's blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, we need Your help so desperately in this moment. I have things I want to impart that I believe could make a lifelong difference for Your great name and for the joy of these people. So come and fill me with Your Spirit as I preach and cause spiritual light to shine on our hearts, the kind of light that reveals Your glory and the magnificence of Your Son. Help us now, we pray, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Please follow along with me while I read Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge or down payment of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. If you have repented of ignoring God to live life your own way and turn to follow Him and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you've also uh, put your trust in the sacrifice Jesus uh, paid on the cross in His own blood to pay for your rebellion and sin, uh, and you've placed your faith in Jesus and turned from your sin to follow God and obey His commands, then the paragraph we're studying this morning is one of the most wonderful, joyous paragraphs in all of the world for you, because what it means is this, God chose you. You were chosen by God to be adopted as His son or daughter, and He knew ahead of time what He was getting into when He adopted you, which is makes it, what makes it all the more amazing. Uh, and I think on a human level, we all know the joy of being chosen by another. As a kid, uh, I loved playing sports, and when I was in elementary school, we lived in Spokane, Washington. We lived in this little community where there was a, um, 
uh, a lot of other boys my age, a lot of other children my age, and we would play sandlot games. Sandlot games, uh, baseball, we'd play basketball, we'd play football in people's yards. And what we would normally do is uh, the two oldest boys or the two boys who were best at that sport, we would make them team captains, and then they would choose, right? One at a time, they each get to choose who would be on their team. And it was wonderful to be chosen, especially if one of the boys was the best or, uh, or, you know, you liked playing with him or you were good friends with him, you wanted to be chosen by him. It was wonderful to be chosen. But one of the, the sad things was, if there was an odd number of players and you were chosen last, oh, it was horrible because what it meant was, you had to sit out the beginning of the game and wait until one of the other boys got tired or took pity on you and subbed out so that you could get a chance to play. But as terrible as it was being chosen last when there was an odd number, it was even worse when there was an even number because what it meant was that you weren't really chosen. I mean, technically, you were chosen, but you were the last one standing there. So the dynamic was, well... I guess we get Chris. You know, it just, you were chosen. I guess technically you were chosen, but it sure didn't feel like it. And, uh, and, but it was great to be chosen, particularly if you weren't chosen last uh, to play on the basketball team or to play football or whatever sport we were playing. And as I grew older, uh, I played on the athletic teams in the public schools, and there was always a tryout. And then you had to, there was this period of time between the tryout. Uh, where you had to wait, and eventually the coach would post the names of all the students who were going to be on the team uh, on, like, the window of his classroom or whatever on such and such a date. And so you would go to the window, and if your name was on that list, you rejoiced because it meant that coach had chosen you to be on the team. Uh, We have the same sort of dynamic once a year. Those of us who are married Um, We celebrate this on our anniversaries. Part of the idea of an anniversary is that you celebrate the fact that the other person chose to marry you. Uh, It is wonderful to be chosen, and the amazing truth of Ephesians 1-4 is that God chose you. It is amazing that the Creator of the universe loved you and chose you to be His. It is a precious truth to take to heart. It is a privilege to return thanks for, and it's a choosing that we need to understand properly. So let's be serious about examining this text. Where we need to begin in verse 3 is to say this. The Apostle Paul normally begins his letters by giving a greeting and then giving a prayer uh, of thanksgiving for the people he's writing to. Often in that prayer of thanksgiving, he'll also let the church in on the requests he's also making on their behalf. And Paul does do that here. We're going to get to that prayer, but he does something very different in Ephesians. Instead of giving that prayer, he just launches in verse 3. He like explodes into this long, ginormous sentence of praise to God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for what they've done in redemption. And this long, in Greek, it's just one long sentence that goes all the way down to verse 14. Um, uh, Typically, the Greek writers, whether you're reading the Bible or ancient Greeks, they typically wrote longer sentences than we do in English, full of all kinds of dependent clauses. And uh, the the theme of this impossibly long sentence uh, is the praise of the glory of God's grace because of what He's done 
in salvation. And you can actually split up this long sentence into three sections based on the repeated refrain, to the praise of His glory. And each section that, that uh, the praise of, the glory, uh, of His glory is marked by, it highlights what one member of the Trinity did in the plan of redemption. In verses 3 through 6, it's the Father who blesses, uh, who, he, he sets in motion a plan of every spiritual blessing for people who will be redeemed and adopted into His family, and He is the one who chooses people unto adoption. In verses 7 and, uh, through 12, the Son is the one who purchases all the blessings the Father has planned. And then in verses 13 through 14, the Holy Spirit applies the blessings that the Son purchased for us to our hearts by faith. And today, we're going to begin examining the Father's role in salvation in verses 3 through 6. So, what is the Father's role in the great plan of salvation? What exactly has the Father done? We'll look again at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That word bless means to say a good word about. So, if you're in Christ, God has spoken a good word about you. He has chosen to give you every spiritual blessing in Christ. And now look at verse 4. Uh, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That opening phrase, just as, uh, you could also translate it as since or insofar as. And, and what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, let me give you a list of the blessings He's given. Uh, uh, he's given all these blessings to us, and the first one is that He's chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, if you were to ask a Christian or a group of Christians, how is it that you've come to obtain the spiritual blessings uh, that God the Father bestows on those who are His, I think many people, myself included, uh, might say something like, well, because I repented of my sin and placed my faith in what Jesus did for me on the cross or because of God's grace to me through Christ paying the penalty for my sins. And those are all true answers, and the apostles highlight those answers in other places in the New Testament. But notice in our section, Paul is answering the same question. How did we come to enjoy God's blessing? But what he does here is he does something very fascinating. He talks about the timing of how we came to receive God's blessing. He says uh, that the timing of being given God's blessing, uh, blessings, plural, came before you trusted Christ, before you were born, even before Jesus died on the cross to purchase the blessings for you, before the foundation of the world. The timing of you receiving God's blessings goes all the way back into eternity past at a time when God chose you for salvation. So, the implication of Ephesians 1-4 then is that your spiritual biography, it didn't begin when you placed your faith in Christ, or even when you were born, or even at the foundation of the world. It began in eternity past when God the Father chose to adopt you as His son or daughter. Now, adoption as His son or daughter is not in verse 4. You have to wait till we get down to verse 5. But that is the purpose, that is the end for which He chose us, that we'd, we would be adopted into His family. He chose us. 
Now, the Greek word that we translate as chosen here at the beginning of verse 4, it means to pick or to choose. It's a faithful translation, to choose, to pick, to single out from a group, to select or to elect. In previous centuries of English-speaking church history, the idea of being chosen by God here, uh, of being selected or elected to be a member of His family, it has led to a spirited debate among Christians about the doctrine of election. If you ever hear about the doctrine of election, uh, this word, uh, this verse is where we get it from, not just this one verse, you can find it in other places as well, but this whole idea of God choosing us, that word choice can also be translated as election. He elected us to be His sons and daughters. And uh, there's a debate, there's an argument about this word and this idea and how it fits into the bigger plan of salvation. And in my experience, that debate often produces more heat than light, and I think one of the reasons why is because the Christians on both sides aren't just stopping to slow down, sit down, open their Bibles, and point at words and phrases and discuss uh, what they mean and and talk about how they fit together, how they're interpreting them. And I admit that because of the heat that's generated, it could be uh, tempting to say, uh, it was tempting for me to think this as a pastor, uh, you know what, Christians down through the ages of church history, they've disagreed vehemently with each other. Let's just not… I mean, everybody has their own opinion. People have read various books and listened to various pastors preach. Uh, Let's just kind of skip over that Uh, or at least preach what we all could agree on and move on. We got better things to do. We don't need one more thing that we can disagree about. And it's easy to just skip the whole thing. But the problem with ignoring God's choosing of us and what this means in Scripture is that these words are in Scripture. These words aren't made up. They're not part of some philosophic, theological question someone posed that continues down to our own day. Uh, These words are in Scripture. We have to have some interpretation of what this means. And the best way to arrive at an understanding of what it means is to simply ask, what does the text of Scripture say? What does this word chosen mean here in this context? But then also, what are other passages of Scripture that speak to the same issue, this same issue, and how do they come to bear on this? Um, When you cross-reference to other portions of Scripture, what do those portions of Scripture say? And so, we're going to try and do that here as we examine what it means that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And what Paul does here in verses 3 through 6 is he outlines several features of what it means to be chosen by God, what election is. And uh, many of you in this room, you're probably already thinking about some other passages I can cross-reference to. I can't preach every single passage the Holy Spirit inspired on this topic or the sermon series. This would become a very long sermon series, but I'm going to try to get to them. And what I want to do is this. We're going to have an outline, and the outline of this is simply going to be what Paul says about the doctrine of election in this passage in verses 3 through 6. So, our outline is not going to be some acronym like TULIP or some other such thing. We're just going to look at what Paul says in order from verses 4 through 6 about what election is. And I promise to my be- the best of my ability, I'll try to explain Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 and the other relevant passages. I'll also do my best to answer some of the concerns and questions that this brings up in every thinking Christian's 
mind. So stick with me. Uh, this will turn in actually to a series. We're going to spend a few weeks here, um, and I'm going to try to address the questions that this issue raises, and with God's help, we'll grow to, together in understanding what the New Testament teaches. So with that in mind, let's look first at the first feature of election. The first feature of election is that election unto salvation is divine. Now, sometimes in English we use the word divine uh, to mean, uh, we use it like an adjective to speak of something that is excellent or delightful, and that's not how I'm using it here in our outline. I mean the older usage of that which comes directly from God. The choosing Paul speaks of here is a selection where God actively does the choosing, and those who are adopted are passively uh, adopted into His kingdom. They're chosen. And so, in this passage, election for salvation is primarily divine, not human. Now, we're going to get to the human element actually just in a couple minutes, but I want to start by highlighting that in Ephesians 1.4, election is divine. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, this Greek word for choose or elect, it occurs 22 times in the New Testament as a verb, and uh, seven of those verbs are speaking of God choosing a person unto salvation. The other 15 uses are just God or a human being making other kinds of choices. The word also occurs 22 times in the New Testament as a noun, and 17 of those nouns refer to salvation. There's also another form of the word that's closely related to these two. It has the same root, and it's used seven times in the New Testament, to, and we typically translate that word as election or choice or choosing. And when you examine the word group, verbs and nouns alike, there's some interesting observations to be made. First of all, that when the choice is made, it's always being made with a full knowledge of all the options. This is true whether the person doing the choosing is God in His omniscience or a human being uh, simply making a selection. Let me give you an example. When Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, chose to sit at the feet of Jesus instead of helping her sister Martha with her preparations, because they were, they were hosting people at the house, when she did that, Jesus said that Mary made the better choice. She understood what it held to help Martha and bless people with service. She also understood what it meant to sit at the feet of Israel's Messiah and learn from Him, and she made the better choice. A second thing this word group implies is that the object being chosen, when it's a person, that when the object is a person, they have no legal right to be chosen. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, or, or maybe we could say it this way. When it's another person, the person who's making the choice is under no ethical, moral, or legal obligation to choose who they choose. A good example would be Jesus. This word is used of Jesus choosing His twelve disciples, right? When He chose Peter and Andrew and James and John, He was under no obligation to choose them. I would hope we would all agree that Jesus was under no obligation to choose a tax collector named Levi to follow Him. It's, just, it's not like uh, Levi earned the right to be chosen as one of Jesus' disciples. And then the third and most interesting observation to be made about this word is that it most frequently, uh, the subject of it most frequently is God Himself, 
doing the choosing. And then fourth, this is very important, because this is, this is a nuance of the word that's very important for understanding how it's used by the biblical authors. It is a word that implies choices being made that are full of personal interest. You could legitimately translate it as, He chose us for Himself. In other words, this is decision-making at the most personal level. This is not some kind of impersonal, coldly clinical choice. This is God choosing people because He loves them and His kindly affection towards them, and He wants to adopt them as His own. And so, based on just studying the Word, we could begin to understand the doctrine of election by saying this about the, the first word we come to in verse 4. Before the creation of the world, God the Father selected individual sinners to salvation with a complete knowledge of all the options, and not because the ones He chose were better or had some right to be chosen, and the choice was intensely personal because He chose to love them and have them join His family as adopted sons and daughters. Now, if you've spent any time around Mark Intner in the last month, you know uh, that Mark is very keen to point out we shouldn't build doctrines around one word or one phrase or one verse in Scripture. We need to cross-reference to all of Scripture and see how Scripture interprets Scripture. We need to let Scripture speak by interpreting itself. And so, that begs the question, are there other passages that teach that God chose us? And the answer is yes. There's so many of them in the New Testament. I'm not going to have time to take you to all of them in this series, uh, but let me go to a couple. Uh, turn over, if you would, to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans 8, 28. Mark actually used this for our pastoral prayer time uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, in Romans 8, 28, we read about uh, the plan of redemption uh, this way, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called, and these whom He called, He also justified, and these whom He justified, he also glorified. Our evangelical forefathers referred to this as the golden chain of salvation, an unbreakable chain where those who are foreknown are predestined, and those who are predestined are called and justified and eventually glorified. And notice where the chain begins, verse 29, those whom He foreknew. In English, to foreknow something is uh, simply to know something beforehand or to be aware of something before it occurs. But that is not what foreknown means in the Greek New Testament. It, and you, can, you can look up any Greek grammar, you can look up any Greek uh, dictionary on the New Testament and see that when it comes to foreknowledge, foreknowledge is not just a foreseeing or a forewareness of, Foreknowledge is a foreplanning, a foreordaining, and you can see this in the way the word is used in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is addressing the people of Jerusalem only weeks after the crucifixion 
and resurrection of Jesus, listen to what He says to them, and listen to how He uses the word foreknown. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over to you by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. The Greek grammar of this sentence makes it clear that the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God are the same thing. I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you. In, I, please, don't let your eyes glaze over because this is important. We need to wrestle with meaning here, okay? In Greek, predetermined plan and foreknowledge are both nouns. They're both nouns in the same case, predetermined plan and foreknowledge, and they have the article, which is the word the, the predetermined plan, they have the article only before the first noun. When you get that construction, what you have going on is parallelism. So, what that means is foreknowledge in Acts 2.23 is the same as God's predetermined plan. It's just like when you're reading in the Old Testament and you're reading a psalm and there's Hebrew parallelism where the second line is giving the same idea but with different words. Uh, it's giving the same idea as the first line, right? Same thing is going on here. So, in Acts 2.23, foreknow the foreknowledge of God is a predetermined plan. God, think about it this way. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because it was the predetermined plan and foreknown or foreplanned or foreordained purpose of God that He die so that our sins could be forgiven. Another example would be in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, uh, Paul addresses his audience as those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So, we were chosen according to His foreknowledge, but then he uses the word foreknowledge to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 20, he says, speaking of Christ, for He, Jesus Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of those who through Him uh, believe, excuse me, for the sake of you who through Him believe in God. So, the context of verse 20 is that God the Father is speaking of the Son as the perfect sacrifice for sins, and Peter says that the Son was foreknown by the Father. So, let me ask you this question. Did the Father just foresee that in the future Jesus would die for sin? Or, based on your reading of Scripture, did the Father foreplan that Jesus would die as a sacrifice for sin. He foreordained the Son to be the sacrifice. And, Jesus, and just as Jesus Christ was foreknown or foreordained by the Father as the ultimate sacrifice, so also we who are foreknown for salvation were foreloved and forechosen by God for salvation. So, if we go back to Romans 8, 28 then and 29, we would say this, those whom God foreknew uh, were foreknown by God, not just the, in the sense that He foresaw or was foreaware that they would come to salvation, He foreplanned it to happen. Uh, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, it's because God chose you unto salvation as His adopted son or daughter. Now, if this is the first time that you've heard this from, or you've even seen God's choosing of you from Ephesians 1.4 or Romans, things I'm saying right now from Romans 8.29, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. 
I remember when I chose God. I even remember the day that I placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It sure felt to me like I chose Him. And now Paul comes along and says, well, yeah, you did choose Him, but also the the better understanding of the story is that way back in in eternity past, He chose you. Why would God set that up that way? And and if, if salvation actually works this way, why would God do it this way? And why would Paul tell us that it happened that way? Well, that's an important question to ask and an important question that I need to answer. And lurking behind that question, lurking behind the truth of divine election is a presupposition that we all need to be very aware of. Whether we agree with it or not, it's a presupposition that we need to be aware of and wrestle with. And this is the presupposition. No fallen human being will ever choose God on their own. Left to themselves, no one will of their own free will ever choose God. Paul says it this way in Romans 3, 10 and 11, there is none righteous, not even one, there's none who understands, there is none who seeks God. All have turned aside, together they've become useless, there's none who does good, not even one. I repeat, there are none who seek God. No sinner seeks Him. No one on their own, exercising their own free will, wants to be reconciled to God. The very idea is repulsive. Uh, This is why Peter says, excuse me, Paul says later on in Ephesians 2.1, we're going to get to Ephesians 2 a little while while on, and he says, we were dead before we came to Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, we were biologically alive, but we were spiritually dead. We were alive on the outside, dead on the inside. Uh, And we're meant to learn by the metaphors and allusions and illustrations the Scriptures make. If you make a kind and generous offer to a dead man, he will never take you up on it. And in the same way, if you make a kind, generous, spiritual offer, offer to a spiritually dead person, they won't take you up on it because dead people don't respond to stimuli. This is why Jesus said in Romans 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In Greek there, the word that Jesus uses for can, it's a word of ability. He's saying no one on their own has the ability to come to me unless the Father draws him. Now, when you read that, you could say one way of understanding that would be to say, okay, that makes perfect sense. People are naturally hard-hearted. They go their own way, and so the Father draws people to repentance and faith in His Son. Um, Not only does He give everybody a second chance by sending His Son as a sacrifice, but then He goes above and beyond the call of duty by drawing them. I shouldn't say it that way above and beyond the call of duty, because it wasn't his duty to give a plan of redemption. But anyway, you understand what I mean. It's a figure of speech. He goes above and beyond the call of duty to even draw people towards this second chance he's given them. But at the end of the day, they still have to make their own decision. It's still their choice, right? He draws them, but it's their choice. And, and you could say, well, because, you know what, because uh, God wants all the glory and salvation and because of how hard the human heart is, I'm sure that it's not like 50-50 His drawing and our choice. It's probably like 90% His drawing and 10% our choice. And to that idea, to that, that possible way that salvation could work, Jesus says this in John 6, 64. <clears throat> Excuse me, let me get a drink. John 6, 64. 
no one can come to me, there's that word for ability, no one has the ability on their own to come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. You can also translate that word grant as gifting. You're giving a gift to somebody. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, when you received a gift on Christmas or on your birthday, was a gift 50-50? No. Was the gift 90% 10? No. It's 100% God, 0% the sinner. It's the Father who chose in eternity past, draws us, and grants us to come to Jesus. Which then begs the question, well, if it's 100% God and 0% man, how is it that people, I mean, they do choose God at some point, they make a public profession, how does that happen? Well, Jesus explains it this way to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus is trying to explain the new birth to Nicodemus, if you remember, and he goes to an Old Testament passages passage that talks about the salvation God will give people in the new covenant. That passage is Ezekiel 36, 26, where speaking of the new covenant, God says that He will give people new hearts and put a new spirit within them. He will remove their unresponsive hearts of stone and give them instead a heart of flesh that loves God and wants to obey His commandments, that agrees with His commandments, wants to keep them. And not only that, Uh, The the verse ends by talking about how He will put His Spirit within us. Uh, You can go check me. You can read Ezekiel 36, 26, then look at John 3 and see the way Jesus talks to Nicodemus about it. And so, what that means is this. When a person professes faith in Christ, it's not because the Father drags someone kicking and screaming against their will uh, to faith in Jesus. Instead, He performs a spiritual heart transplant. He gives a new nature, a new heart. And you know what comes with that new heart? A new will. A new will that very naturally, organically turns from its rebellion to choose God, to choose repentance and faith. Now, this way of understanding salvation, it makes perfect sense when you look at Acts 11.18, Acts 13.48, and Ephesians 2.8. What do I mean there? Well, the two uh, important aspects of salvation are repentance from sin. We have to confess our sin for what it is, repent of it, and then also faith in Christ. Listen to how repentance and faith are talked about in these passages. Acts 11, the leaders of the Jerusalem church hear a report about how Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. Acts 11.18 records this. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted or gifted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So, the very repentance Gentiles were practicing is portrayed by the Jews who are there as a gift of God. It's not their repentance. God gave them the gift of repentance so that they would turn from their sins. 2 Timothy 2.25 says the same thing. It talks about God giving people the gift of repentance, so that the repentance they practice isn't a repentance that welled up from within their own heart independent of God's work. God worked in them first. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. They go to the synagogue first. They're reasoning in the synagogue. Eventually, they get kicked out of the synagogue. They go to the Gentiles in the marketplace. And when the Gentiles heard this, this is Acts 13, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And as many had been as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. They didn't believe and therefore earn an appointment to eternal life. 
They had been appointed to eternal life, and when they heard the message, then they believed because they had been previously appointed. Acts, uh, Ephesians 2.8, Paul says this about faith, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. In other words, the faith you practice is not a faith that you had independent of God's intervention in your life. It's a gift of God's regenerating work in your heart so that even though you used to be hostile to Him, now you've willingly placed your faith in His Son. This is why all these New Testament passages about being chosen before the foundation of the world or being predestined salvation, they can't be explained away as some kind of foreseen faith from Romans 8, 29. But for two reasons. That violates what the Greek meaning of foreknown is. It's not just a foreseeing. It's not just a forewareness of who would choose to respond in faith to salvation. Uh, so it violates the word, but also it's because of the, a different understanding of faith. Saying that God looked down the corridors of time, saw who would take Him up on His offer of salvation, and then He calls them the elect, the problem with that is that it would necessitate those people practicing a faith of their own apart from God's intervention, and that's not at all biblical. Um, uh, that's not even possible. Think, think for just a moment. Stop and think for a moment about what that would mean. That would mean that someone who is carnal and has their mind set on the flesh and who the Bible says is spiritually dead and unable to respond to spiritual stimuli and who is spiritually blind and hostile to God would on their own practice faith in Him and take Him up on His offer of salvation. That just, that's, that's not consistent with what Scripture teaches. So you can't look at chosen in Ephesians 4.1 and explain it away as God foreseeing who would believe and then calling them the chosen. Uh, that's not what's going on here. Um, and that leads to a second point we need to make about uh, this issue, and that is that the Father, when He made this choice, He didn't choose based on anything but His own free will decision to love those whom He chose, right? Um, uh, why did He choose those whom He chose? Well, it wasn't because of what was in them, it's because of what's in Him. And a good way to illustrate this would be in the Old Testament, God's choice of Israel to be His chosen nation. What does God say about that choice? Well, in Deuteronomy 7-7, God is having a conversation with Moses, and He tells Moses, I didn't choose the nation of Israel because you guys were more numerous than other nations or because you were more virtuous than other cultures and nations, but because the Lord loved you, because Yahweh loved you. That's the rock-bottom answer given in Deuteronomy for why God chose Israel because He loved them. He wanted to set His love on them and make Him their, His special nation. And why did God choose those whom He's chosen in the new covenant? Because He set His love on them and wants them to be His sons and daughters. Pastor John Newton liked to tell the story of a woman in his congregation who liked to prove the doctrine of divine election, and that, and my, the point I'm making here is that election is unconditional. Some Christians look at election and they say, well, God must have chosen based on seeing ahead of time who would take Him up on the offer of salvation. And so, 
uh, election is conditioned, the, the reason for it is because a person chose God on their own. And what we're saying is, no, election is unconditional. It's not because of any trait or virtue or decision within the heart of the person being chosen. And, and John Newton, Pastor John Newton, had a woman in his congregation that believed in the doctrine of unconditional election. She loved it, but instead of trying to reason with people who disagreed from Scripture, uh, reason with them from Scripture, she just liked to use a story of her own experience. Um, and this is what she said. The Lord must have loved me before I was born, or else He would not have seen anything in me to love afterwards. And later on, Pastor Charles Spurgeon found this quote, and this is what Spurgeon said. I'm sure it's also true in my own case. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen Him. And I'm sure He chose me before I was born, or else He never would have chose me afterwards. And He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept the great biblical doctrine. And to that, I would say a hearty amen. The same is true for me. Election would have to be unconditional for God to choose Chris Krupp. So Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, we're just starting into them here, but they teach that election is divine and that it's unconditional. It's not based on something God saw in the person chosen, but in something within God Himself, and we'll explore more of what that is when we come back together next week. But Paul's words here, they bring up a lot of questions. They bring up a lot of concerns. And so next Sunday, I'm going to do my best to anticipate and address some of the questions that this teaching brings up. In the meantime, though, I want to close by addressing the question of why is it important to slow down and work through this, right? Why not just kind of preach it in a way that encourages everybody, hey, God loves you, He's chosen you, kind of hover above the text and just move on to what Christ did in verses 7 through 11, uh, especially when it's something Christians disagree on. Why spend time doing it? Well, I have three reasons why I want to slow down and do what I think will be a three-part series on it. Number one, these words are in Scripture, and we need to reckon with them, right? Uh, Calvinists didn't make them up. Arminians didn't make them up. Pelagius didn't make up these words. Uh, Augustine, when he had to respond to Pelagius, he didn't make these words up. They're in Scripture, and we need to reckon with them. Number two, the doctrine of election, especially its unconditional part, kills pride. It's one thing to say, I'm saved because when I heard the gospel, I repented of my sin and placed my faith in Christ. It's quite another thing to say, I'm saved because when I was spiritually dead and unable to respond to spiritual stimuli, God took out my unresponsive heart of stone, gave me a new heart, breathed spiritual life in me, and gave me the gifts of repentance and faith. And He had to intervene that way because if He had just left me to my own free will, I never would have chosen Him. That's a completely different way to talk about your own salvation than just the first way. And what it does is it kills pride. Think about the opposite. If you were to say, well, no, I think it makes way more sense that God's choice was conditioned upon Him seeing ahead of time who would choose Him, then when we ask the question, well, then why do some people cut? Why are some people saved and others aren't? We have to look within the people who came to Christ 
for our reason, for why are some saved and why are some not. And you know the only possible answers we're going to come to? The only possible answers we can possibly come to are because you were wiser than those other people or you were more virtuous than those other people. Do you really want to say that? Right? God created salvation to destroy and take away all bragging rights in heaven. And that doesn't just mean bragging rights about uh, our good works and what we've accomplished and our moral track record. That includes bragging about making a better choice than all those other people who rejected the gospel. Uh, it's unconditional, and the unconditional nature of it kills pride. And having killed pride, number three, the doctrine of election awakens praise. Now, I say this, not just based on experience, I say this because it's what the biblical authors say. Look at the biblical authors. Every time they bring up election, what do they end up doing after explaining it? They break out into praise, and Mark read some of that praise for you during the pastoral prayer time, right? Uh, Paul does this in in Romans 8. I only read the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8, but as soon as Paul gets done explaining it, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If this is the way salvation works, what could possibly separate us from God's love? Would tribulation or distress or persecution or peril or the sword? I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The fact is, life is full of disappointments. There are many people, I mean, and relational disappointments is what I'm talking about here. There are many people that you choose that don't choose you back. There are many people you set your love on that don't love you back. And many of the people you choose and that you love and that you're affectioned for, many of them at some point will either let you down or betray you, or reject you, and it can make life feel really lonely. But take heart, brothers and sisters, if you've come to faith in Christ, it's proof positive that the Father has chosen you. He set His love on you before the world was created, and before you did anything good or bad to commend yourself to Him. According to Romans 8, He not only foreloved you, He predestined you, called you, and justified you through His Son, and He's now working to make you into a spiritually beautiful person whom He will glorify in heaven. If you're in Christ this morning, God chose you and set His love on you, and He's predestined you for everything heaven has to offer. Let's pray.